where the kingdom of heaven intersects with the kingdom of this world, there's always bound to be conflict. But you probably don't need me to tell you that. Just a few months ago when I was scribbling down a few notes that would eventually become uh, the outline for the sermon today, I couldn't help but notice a few headlines that were just jumping out of the news. Uh, the, one at, the one at the time that really seemed to grab my attention was the decision of the Battle River School Division Board to cut ties with uh, Cornerstone Christian Academy near Camrose. Of course, since that time, most of you could probably pick any number of other headlines that are more current and would, would illustrate the fact even more clearly, but I want to read you just a snippet from that little global news report uh, about that school board dispute. I'll quote, According to the BRSD, trustees attended a special meeting on Thursday at which they voted in favor of bringing their current relationship with the Cornerstone Christian Academy Society to an end. Trustees spoke to the increasingly difficult dynamics between themselves and the Cornerstone Society Board, said the BRSD in a news release. They acknowledged that both parties must take responsibility for the current state of affairs. A little over two weeks ago, legal advocates for the CCA alleged that the BRSD was trying to censor what parts of the Bible the school could teach its students. At the time, a spokesperson for the school board said trustees were concerned some biblical verses the school planned to use in a student handbook may contravene Alberta's human rights legislation. End quote. That part in the middle there that mentions increasingly difficult dynamics and that both parties must take responsibility for the situation, uh, that's political language for a reality that shouldn't be all that surprising to us. Sad, maybe, yes, but surprising, probably not really. Uh, It shouldn't come as a surprise that an institution named Cornerstone Christian Academy would insist on teaching all of the Bible to its students. And at this point in history, it's not particularly surprising that there would be pressure from a secular school board to stop doing just that very thing. The two worldviews are just incompatible. Some kind of conflicts and tension between a community that lives and teaches and is shaped by the gospel and the rest of the world is just inevitable. It's inevitable. This morning is going to be a part one of two and a message that looks at... uh, just what we can expect in this kind of conflict, at least from a spiritual perspective and a biblical perspective. Part two, next week, we're going to look at the nature of the resistance and the response to the gospel and the conflict that we experience in our culture. We're going to see what it is about the gospel that provokes such a a violent response from all the people uh, who hear it. But before we get there, we're going to spend part one Today, looking at how the gospel advances, how the gospel gets out there and makes a difference in our world. Because the response of the world is not just a response directed at the content of the message of the gospel, the world also responds to the way the gospel changes things. That's what scares the world, is the way the gospel gets out there and changes people. So I'm going to ask you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 19. Acts 19 records for us the missionary activity of the Apostle Paul when he arrives at uh, the city of Ephesus. And the events here are in a lot of ways the climax 
of some similar encounters in what we call Paul's second and third missionary journeys across uh, Macedonia and Asia. And that Macedonia is an inside joke with uh, Kelsey, who just got back from Greece. Uh, so this is one of Paul's longest and most influential ministries that we get recorded in the book of Acts. And in it, we get a glimpse of the way the power of God takes the gospel into an area and, and turns that region upside down and changes things. So let's read together Acts 19 from verses 1 to 20. And as I read out loud... I want to encourage you to follow along in the text in front of you, and as you do that, be asking this question. What is the source of the power that's working through Paul and through the gospel? What is the thing, or what are the things, that are responsible for the changes that we see because of the gospel? And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we haven't even heard there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, And their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So where does the power of the gospel come from here? I want to point out three things that appear so influential there there is just no conceivable way of removing them from this account and retaining any of the significance of what's here. Three things that if you were to try to remove them or change them, 
the story as it comes to us in Scripture would not even be recognizable as the same story anymore. These three things are the name of Jesus, the power of the Holy Spirit, and the word of the Lord. The name of Jesus, the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, and the word. Verses 1 to 7, it's Jesus' name that these halfway disciples must be baptized into. The Holy Spirit comes upon them and verifies this afterwards. Even though the word of the Lord isn't mentioned until the end in verse 20, we're to understand that this can be read as a summary of everything that we just read in that passage. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. These three things, the name of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and the Word of God, are not only individually crucial to the way the gospel advances in the world, but they're, they're in, interconnected so that you can't have one without the others. This should be obvious, but without faith in Jesus Christ, crucified for sin and resurrected to everlasting life, there's just no Christianity. There is no gospel. There is no message. There would be no church. Christianity is a truth claim about the person of Jesus. That he was the Son of God sent to save sinners. That through faith in his name alone, we have our sins against a good and righteous and holy God forgiven. That there is salvation in no other name, and that all of this happened according to the word that God spoke beforehand. The Holy Spirit is the indwelling presence of God in a believer's life. The spirit of life and truth, God himself marks every true child of God. The work of the Holy Spirit is necessary, first of all, for sinners to see and hear and trust in God's word. He's the one who convicts of sin and righteousness. He's the one who leads sinners in faith and repentance. And he is the one who sanctifies and gives power to each Christian. He makes the Christian life possible. The truth of the word of God cannot be comprehended apart from the Holy Spirit. The gospel of Jesus Christ can't be explained without the word of God. And the Holy Spirit can't be received any other way other than saving faith in the name of Jesus. The gospel doesn't advance without these three things. Faith in the name of Jesus, the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, and the word of the Lord. With those three things as our foundation undergirding everything that we'll talk about. Let's look at some principles regarding the way the gospel gets out there and changes people that appear in our passage today. In verses 1 to 7, we find this really interesting encounter between the Apostle Paul as he's traveling into Ephesus and these certain disciples who had heard some of John the Baptist's teachings. We'll just read 1 to 7. Um, actually, just look closely at 1 to 7 while we'll talk. We just read it. So. In order for the gospel to advance, the gospel must be explained. It must be explained. Maybe you've heard this famous line before. Preach the gospel at all times. Use words if necessary. Preach the gospel at all times. Uh, use words if necessary. Have you heard that one? It's pretty clever. It sounds clever, anyway. It's one of those misquotes that, uh, as far as we can tell, the person that was supposed to have said it never actually said it. Uh, it was, in this case, it would be St. Francis of Assisi. Now, at its best, 
at his best, preach the gospel at all times, use words if necessary, that can be a reminder that our lives should be so changed by the gospel and the grace of God that we look like our message when we take the message out to people. We should look and act like saved people. We should love people. We should live out the gospel. But at its worst, though, that saying kind of communicates an idea that's not true at all. It suggests that we can live in a way that preaches the gospel without ever needing to use words. And that just doesn't make sense. Words are necessary to explain the gospel. The gospel is the message that Jesus, the Lamb of God, died to take away the sins of the world. And that by believing in him, you can be saved from your sins and given eternal life. Now, as a Christian, it does not matter. Okay, I shouldn't say it doesn't matter. But no matter, no matter how much I love my wife, which should be a lot, no no matter how many times I shovel my neighbor's sidewalk, which is going to depend, No matter how generous I am with my money, which should be very, as I have an opportunity, or how concerned with mercy and justice I am, which I must be because of who my Father in Heaven is, and I could go on and on, no matter all of these uh, Christian things that I do, my neighbor who sees me do all of those things will not hear and understand the gospel. He won't know to call on the name of Jesus if I don't use words to tell him and explain what I believe. So preach the gospel with your whole life. Absolutely. Use words, though, because they're necessary. The gospel needs to be explained. People need to hear about Jesus. Look at the interaction between these disciples of of, of John the Baptist and Paul. Some of you might come to this with the knowledge that this passage can sometimes be a controversial battleground for certain theological disputes. Um, I don't see it that way. In fact, I think it's kind of ironic that what we see take place here is the very opposite of a theological dispute. This is more of just a pleasant, fruitful conversation. This is a great conversation. Paul meets some disciples that he's never met before, and out of innocent curiosity, he assumes these people are believers. He just asks them a question. Do you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? This is exciting stuff. Let's swap stories. Let's talk about what God has done in our lives. But their answer is strangely intriguing. They haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. This is a red flag for Paul. Because the very existence of the church is marked by the presence of the Holy Spirit, who was poured out at Pentecost in fulfillment of God's promises. What Paul does next, though, should be really instructive for you and I, as we conduct ourselves, and when we have spiritual conversations with people, we need to pay attention to what Paul does next. Does he just kind of smile at these people and wave and say, okay, guys, you have fun being disciples. I'm going to go over here to the church where everyone talks the way I talk and just be comfortable. No, that's not what he does. Paul asks them another question. And he does that because he's genuinely interested in finding out what they believe, because he's going to need to know what they believe if he's going to explain the gospel to them. Look at the next exchange in verse 3. So he asks them, Into what then were you baptized, if you've never heard of the Holy Spirit? And they said, Into John's baptism. Now remember the formula that Jesus taught his disciples for baptism. This is part of the Great Commission. 
right? In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Well, it's obvious that that's not what these guys were baptized into because they've never heard of the Holy Spirit. It turns out that they have heard some of the teachings of John the Baptist that have been kind of circulating ever since his big ministry. It turns out that what they've gone through is a baptism for the repentance of sin based on some of John's teachings. But listen, though, to the actual teaching of John the Baptist that's recorded for us in Luke chapter 3. Because the people were in expectation, all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. So John answered them, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So John's actual baptism and his teaching already pointed way beyond himself toward Jesus, who would come later and baptize with the Holy Spirit. So these disciples claim to follow John, but it seems like they've only received part of his message. They're not even really good disciples of John. They've just got a little bit of the information. And at this point, we need to again pay careful attention to Paul's example for us today. Does Paul upon hearing their confused explanation of John the Baptist's message, does he, say, launch into this condemning speech telling them how everything they believe is wrong? No. Does he decide that they're just a lost cause and walks away feeling superior about himself? No, he doesn't do that either. What Paul does, and let's pay careful attention to this complicated technique, Paul tells them what he knows about Jesus. Wow. Having already asked them what they believe, and then having listened carefully to what they believe so that he understands them, he tells them the truth about Jesus. That's his big move here. That's what we should do before we get into fights with people. Just try telling people first. So they say they've been baptized into John's baptism, and Paul explains to them John's baptism was actually the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who would come after him, which is Jesus. So these men have presumably already been made aware that they have sin, that they need repentance, and that they have a need for salvation and forgiveness. John's message that they had heard would have exposed their need for salvation. These guys just haven't heard the rest of the story. They haven't heard the good part. So Paul tells them, Jesus is the one you must believe in. And it's important to realize that it's not until after they have believed in the name of Jesus that they receive the Holy Spirit. The power to live the Christian life and the spiritual status of adopted child of God, that's not acquired just through human repentance, but only through belief in Jesus Christ. So Christianity, as a religion, is not really just a code of conduct, or a set of principles to live by, or a way of life. It's also more than just an awareness of sin, more than just a bad feeling that I've done wrong, and a sorry feeling in my heart, because that, that doesn't deal with the consequences of my sin. Before they knew Jesus, these guys had a whole, they had a code to live by. They had uh, an awareness of sin and they felt bad for it. For all intents and purposes, they had a religion. But until they heard that they must trust in Jesus, they did not have eternal life. 
They did not have their sins forgiven. And they did not have the Holy Spirit within them. Paul met these people and he simply told them the truth about Jesus. And that was what they needed to hear. That was what made the difference. So if we are Christ's church, saved through faith in him, filled with the Holy Spirit, obedient to the word of God, and if we desire to see the gospel advance out around us, if we desire to see the lost saved, to see sinners turn from death and come into the kingdom of God, then we need to ask ourselves, who in Wetaskiwin or elsewhere, who are we telling about Jesus? Who do you, specifically you, need to tell about Jesus? Who needs to hear it from you? Who needs to hear it from me? And if it's not me who tells them, who will? Sometimes God has a heart so prepared for the good news that all it takes is just telling them. Like here in verses 1 to 7. Other times it takes a different approach. If you look at verses 8 to 10. They entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning, and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with them, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. He entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning, and persuading. Some people just need to be told. Other people patiently need to be told over and over, and carefully, and patiently. I like the three terms used to describe that three months worth of discussion. Boldly, reasoning, and persuading. All three of those things might be required. But the point is that every effort was made to make sure someone didn't just hear the gospel, but they understood it. That there was no doubt that by the time that that bold and reasoning and persuading time was done, they understood what the message was. Holy Spirit, give us boldness instead of fear. Give us an ability to reason instead of this tendency towards frustration and closed-mindedness. And give us patient hearts that are willing to plead with others persuasively out of love. The gospel must be explained. And the place we explain the gospel from is the scriptures. This is where the truth about Jesus is found. Everything we know about him is here. Not everyone has the same response to that truth. Everyone has one response or the other. We've already considered the joyous response of those disciples who believed in the first verses, but sometimes the gospel produces a different response in people who hear it and reject it. But that doesn't change our responsibility to share it. If anything, what it does is it increases our responsibility to share the gospel from the word of God. So if someone is going to reject it, we don't want them to reject just our clever ideas. We want them to hear the very word of God, to have a chance to hear it. After this decisive split occurs, because there does come a point, there comes a point where someone has heard it and they have chosen to reject it now. And that's what happens with some of this group 
So there's a split, there's a relocation of the teaching, but the teaching doesn't stop. This goes on for two years. In verse 10, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. What an incredible statement that is. Wouldn't that be a great uh, little bit of a report to hear in a missionary letter? All have heard the word of the Lord. Excellent progress report. You know, sometimes we forget what an incredible message it is we have to share. First century Asia was probably not full of lost souls who were any less sinful or any less blind or any less lost as 21st century North America. But the message spread and spread and could not be ignored until everyone heard it because it's an incredible message. There's nothing else like the offer of salvation in the cross. Nothing else like it. And on top of that, it's a message that is always accompanied with the power of God. Holy Spirit-empowered lives and speaking. More on that later. But the gospel has never stopped advancing. Not for 2,000 years. Not even close. We might think it's fallen on hard times or dry soil in North America these days. And perhaps, perhaps it has. One thing that this passage needs to leave us wondering, though, today, is just how many Christians in North America are actually telling other people the gospel of Jesus Christ and doing it through lives that are shaped by the Holy Spirit and with the Word of God. First, we have to ask that question. But there are other parts of the world absolutely on fire from the gospel right now. For, for the last few decades, parts of Africa have been sending missionaries to Western nations. Because the truth is that the United States and Canada and Europe are mission fields now. And the gospel advances. It does. The gospel advances. In the name of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit and according to the word of the Lord, the gospel doesn't stop advancing. It produces results and responses where it's heard. And when we don't witness very much of either response, either people calling on the name of the Lord or people being made uncomfortable by our lives and our message, then it is time to ask, how are we doing, how am I doing with these three areas? With living a life that's controlled by the Holy Spirit, with telling other people about Jesus, and with growing in the Word. How are we doing? The answer might be that I have been faithful in those areas, and this is just a season where I have to wait. I have to wait on God's timing and be faithful But the answer isn't necessarily that. We have to ask the question. We have to ask, are we telling people? Do we look like our message? Because as we're going to see in the second half of our passage, the gospel works itself out with a power that cannot be counterfeited or ignored. We'll pick things up in verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs, or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. I like that extra word. God was doing extraordinary miracles. Like, not just regular-type miracles. You know, this is, this is really an incredible, kind of one-of-a-kind occurrence. It's the only thing we really see like this in Scripture. Um, Don't believe the guy on the TV channel who says that God just really wants you to send him money so that he can send you back his anointed handkerchief uh, so that God will do miracles in your life. Okay, that's 
that guy is probably not the Apostle Paul. But this really did happen in this situation. And I'm convinced that the reason God chose to work this way, in this time and place, is because that was what Ephesus needed. Ephesus was plagued by pagan witchcraft and magic practices. I think they needed to be shown that Jesus was greater than that stuff in a very specific way. Now, the greatest miracle God ever works is when he brings a soul to repentance and faith in the name of Jesus. That's the highest miracle God can ever perform. And he does it every time someone turns to him and is saved. Every time someone is saved and made alive in Jesus. Every time that is the best. That's the best miracle. There's nothing more incredible Nothing, no work of God that's more special than that. When God uses Paul's sweaty work clothes to heal the sick, that's not a higher kind of miracle than when someone trusts him. That's a lower kind of miracle. But it was the one that the people in Ephesus needed. Because they needed to see that the magic they were putting their trust in to solve their problems was nothing compared to the name of Jesus Christ. Verse 13, then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took to invoking the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I command you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. What a sight that would have been. Every time I read those verses, I can't help but more or less picture like in a Western movie, you know, all these guys walk into a saloon, and then all of a sudden one guy flies out through the doors, and someone flies out through the window, and then bodies out through the other window, and finally everyone just tucks tails and runs and doesn't even look back. These imposter exorcists, <laughs> sorry, these magic workers have taken notice of Paul's ministry. They can't ignore that he's doing things that they can't do, or God is doing, more accurately, God is doing things through him that they can't do. And interestingly enough, they put their finger on, on what the source of that power is. They narrow it down and they say, it's this Jesus, the name of Jesus. That's what explains what's so special about Paul's ministry. So they think that they've found a new tool in their magic playbook. Let's use this powerful name that Paul uses. But they quickly learn that Jesus is not a name that it can be used like a magic spell apart from a faith and a relationship in him. The power of God working in the name of Jesus cannot be counterfeited. Belief in the name of Jesus and the power of God's Holy Spirit and the truth of God's word all go together. And not only can the power of God not be counterfeited, it works in ways that just flat out can't be ignored. Look at verse 17. This became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. You see the result God brings from this? The name of Jesus didn't get used for evil after all. The evil that was intended ends up being used by God to bring just more honor back on the name of Jesus. So 
wherever the name of Jesus is being proclaimed, in name and truth and deed, the Holy Spirit is going to be actively working in power. What Ephesus needed was to see and experience the fact that that dark magic they were dependent on could not compare with Jesus Christ. So God performed these miraculous signs to validate the message. I believe there are places today with similar battle lines. There are parts of Africa where, this, where kinds of paganism and spiritism, it's a real issue. It holds sway over people. And in those places, exorcisms in the name of Jesus are not rare. And they are not fake. My favorite story came from an experienced African pastor who was visiting and working with some of his Western brothers. And they wanted to know, have you ever cast out a demon? Really? Have you done it? And immediately the man said, no, never. And he let them just be shocked for a few moments because they'd heard so much. And then he followed it up by saying this, but I have seen Jesus do it many times. Always Jesus. What a difference that perspective makes. And you'd better believe that difference was crucial in the midst of that spiritual battle. And I'll ask you this, do you think we can afford to stand, to take a different stand on the name of Jesus, if we want to see people freed from the kinds of darkness that is prevalent here in our part of the world. In a place where substance addictions and entertainment addictions and technological dependence and celebrity worship and broken families and selfishness and greed just run rampant, what do miracles look like here in North America? Can we rely on anything other than the name of Jesus to save souls here? And isn't it neat that we can, say, we can say to people, do you want to see selfish people turned upside down into generous ones? Do you want to see what it looks like when proud souls are made humble? When old enemies seek forgiveness and reconciliation? What does it look like for someone to actually reach out and ask for help? And then to have the community around him respond by providing that help? What does it look like when someone confesses their sin and admits they've done wrong, and the community around them responds with forgiveness and restoration. What does it look like for a group of people who have no earthly reason to spend any time together, love each other like a family? Well, come down to our church and see what that looks like. Because God's doing things in our church. Me? No, I could never hope to do any of that. But just look and see what Jesus is doing in our church. Uh, verse 18. And many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. They counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. This is an absolutely critical point where we're going to pick things up next week as we look at just exactly why and how the world responds when it feels threatened by the advance of the gospel. It is hugely expensive bonfire of magical books. This was not normal. This was a very exceptional circumstance. Those books were not the books of unconverted pagans in Ephesus. Those were the books and the practices of church members. 
This is how reform showed up in Ephesus. Paul didn't show up teaching unbelievers how to live slightly less sinful lives. He was not working to influence the local government to outlaw certain practices. He was preaching the gospel in the name and power of Jesus and the people who heard and received it and underwent change, the the people who changed were the ones who were believers. Verse 18, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. What happened next was the furthest thing from normal that Ephesus could have imagined. No one could have ignored what that big bonfire meant. Here were people making a public proclamation, we don't need the things we used to need. We don't need the things that the people around us need anymore. We have found something better. We have found someone better. His name is Jesus, and he has saved us from our sins. One commentator writes of this book bonfire, says, yeah, that was a lot of money consigned to the flames. It was one of the best investments those believers ever made. Remember when we said there were three things necessary for the advance of the gospel? The name of Jesus being preached, the authority of the word of God, and the power of the Holy Spirit? Well, there's actually one more thing in this chapter that is absolutely crucial for God's plan. And that is men and women who have believed and who have been transformed by the message that they have believed. The message of the gospel, as much as it is revealed by God and God alone, it requires men and women who have experienced the power of salvation to go out and bring that message to others. That's God's plan, to do it that way, to use his people as messengers. We have that privilege. We'll look at the world's response next week, but it's important to remember that the reason the world gets so worried when it sees the gospel change people, when it sees Jesus Christ get a hold of people, the reason that this conflict arises is not always the reason we think of today. The conflict between the church and the world should not primarily come up because the church is trying to change the world so that the world behaves in a way that makes the church feel more comfortable. No, the conflict comes up because the people of God have been so radically and dramatically changed by the gospel, changed to the point where the world is frankly uncomfortable that the Christians are there at all. It's the conduct of the Christians that makes the world uncomfortable because they look like the message. So if we want to see the gospel advance, we need to be transformed by the power of the gospel until we look like the message. And then we need to actually share the message itself. We can't skip that. So are there things preventing you from standing out like a sore thumb in the world? Are there things that need to be confessed and thrown onto the fire? Things that you've been holding onto because you haven't yet experienced the freeing truth that Jesus is better and more able to save and able to give your life more meaning than those things. Then get rid of them. Confess them and consign them to the flames. Stand up for Jesus and stand apart from the world. Are there people that God has on your heart and mind that need to hear the truth about Jesus from you? Tell them. Tell them.
And know that when you do it, you have the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit himself working in you and through you. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you that you have called your people that this table before us that we celebrated at communion today, that at great cost, at great cost you have called people to yourself. That the body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was the price to redeem a people for yourself. What a message. Free pardon from sin. A new life. A new identity as a son or daughter in your family, Father. What a message we have to bring to the world. And Lord, what a privilege it is that you, you have chosen. You have chosen to work in a way that you involve your people. That we are privileged to be called the hands and feet and body of our Lord and Savior. Yet this message that has saved us is the message that we are sent out to share. Father, I pray that you give us the ability to do that boldly, to do that persuasively, to do that in a way that's able to to use all of our minds and all of our strength to, to reason with people and to explain to them how great you are and what you've done for us. Lord, we pray that the gospel would advance from our churches, from other churches that, that call on your name in our town. Lord, we lift up and pray for all of the missionaries that have gone out from this church and from others who are doing that very thing in other places. Father, we pray that your light would shine in a way that overcomes the darkness. Lord, may the message go out in the name of Jesus and in the power of your Spirit. We know this. We know this because of your word. Jesus, help us walk obediently to what you have shown us. In your name we pray. Amen.